Welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we try and usually fail to stream everything, but that's okay. It's the trying that counts. It's the journey that is the reward, they like to say. Kind of like the journey that a man named Cassian Andor is going on right now. A journey that we happen to know will end in his death. That, that's not a spoiler for the TV show we're reviewing today. That's a spoiler for a movie that came out like a decade ago. So we're, we're in the clear on that one. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Andor, the new series on Disney Plus, and I'll be reviewing it today. My name is Chris Barlow. I'm your host, and I'm joined across the internet in a galaxy far, far away called Brooklyn by Diane Nora. How are you doing this week, Diane? I'm great. This is a very fun show to talk about. It is a very fun show to talk about. I want to tease our review with a tease of a different person's review. This is a very interesting choice I've made. Uh, In Vulture, fantastic media TV review publication, Vulture from New York Magazine, Roxana Haddadi reviewed Andor, and she used the headline, Is Andor the Cure for Star Wars Ennui? I love that headline, and I think in this episode we may attempt to answer the question, is Andor the cure for Star Wars ennui? More of that to come. But first... We have some follow-up about our favorite apocalyptic network of the moment, NBC, and of course... Peacock. Can't talk about them without talking about the other. NBC does Peacock comedy that once was a joke on 30 Rock and now is just a fact. And speaking of NBC's peacocking of comedy, Saturday Night Live. We've talked about Saturday Night Live so many times on this show, Diane. I think it's fair to say we're fans. I am. Yeah, longtime fan. Longtime fan, first time caller. Not true. We've called in about it before. You can uh, actually listen to our thoughts on season 47 of Saturday Night Live. We did a recap back at the end of that season in the spring. And now we're getting ready for season 48, which has been said so many times now, it is making me sick to hear it. It's going to be a season of change, of a transition, of a transformation. How many words do you want to just pull out of the corporate jargon speak to say, a lot of people left? They're rebuilding. It's a rebuilding season. That's right. It's a sports metaphor, too. It's so many things. Uh, And there are going to be some new cast members. We wanted to touch on this because now we have some details about season 48. It is premiering on October 1st, and there's going to be a stretch of three new episodes, three weeks in a row, uh, with some very interesting guest hosts. Diane, you're really excited about October 8th with Brendan Gleeson. Of course I am. I love Brendan Gleeson, and he's going to be in... The new Martin McDonough film, The Banshees of Inisherin, which comes out in October. I thought it was interesting that the AV Club kept trying to push that he was there to promote Joker 2, which doesn't come out until October 2024. I think he's here for Banshees of Inisherin, and people just need to get pumped about their Martin McDonough. Always. Always. Uh, But that is not the host I am most excited for. I am most excited for October 15th when we have Mm. our first guest host, musical guest Double Duty with Megan Thee Stallion. Yeah, the only thing better than one Megan Thee Stallion is two Megan's Thee Stallion. That's correct. Fantastic. I I thought she was pretty funny on She-Hulk. She did a great job. It was a small cameo, but she nailed it. It was fun. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. So I'm I'm hopeful that they will have a lot of fun with her as a guest host. Uh, the season premiere is Miles Teller with Kendrick Lamar. That's coming on October 1st. And you will see four new cast members. And then we will recap how many have disappeared. But let's start with the good news. Who are these new cast members, Diane? 
So we have uh, Marcelo Hernandez, uh, Molly Carney, Michael Longfellow, and Devin Walker. I have heard of none of them, but there is a great article from the AV Club that we are going to include in the show notes that has a bit of history on each of the four and clips of each of their stand-up, which is, I think, a great entry to just see what what their vibe is. I, I have in parentheses on our show notes here, Marcelo is TikTok. He's a TikTok comedian. Molly is on A League of Their Own. Michael had a special on the Netflix stand-up special anthology series, Netflix is a Joke. Mm -hmm. And Devin Walker has written for Everything's Trash and Big Mouth. So even if you don't know him, you probably do know his work. That's really exciting. I think you can also sort of get a feel for where Lauren wants this season to go based on their vibes. Yeah. So exciting. And they all seem really pumped for the opportunity, which is always kind of fun to see the new cast members, you know, when it is something they've been like dreaming of doing with their career forever. Molly Kearney has a really fantastic Instagram post announcing their casting. Uh, They were great on A League of Their Own. So I'm super excited for them. As am I. Yeah. And definitely uh, as much as it's a shame to be losing some of these fantastic cast members like Kate McKinnon, A.D. Bryant, now Pete Davidson, Kyle Mooney, Melissa Villasenor, <laughs> Alex Moffat, Aristotle Athari, and now Chris Red. A big loss. Another big loss. Uh, seeing some new talent come in is great. Yeah, it is. It is. And and it, like you said, this is a window into the direction Lauren is ready to take the show. And he knows that there's a lot of questions and I think concerns about losing so many A-list cast members. So he had a nice profile in the New York Times, because where do you go to kind of do a little media damage control? You stop by the New York Times. Or really, you probably summon the reporter from the New York Times to stop by 30 Rock, but whatever. Uh, it's, a, it's a good article. It's an interesting interview. The things that I took away that I thought were most interesting was Lauren saying what we're all thinking, which is a lot of these cast members would have left the show one, two, or three years ago if not for the pandemic, right? Like, in no right. universe did Kate McKinnon plan on still being on the show this long, I think. And in the pandemic, he says, I've got a quote here, the pandemic had put us in this position where no one could really leave because there were no jobs. <laughs> Which is a pretty cut and dry way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, I did note that he said they're going to keep the weekend update team in place, at least for this year, as we go into uh, midterms. Uh, He said that that was important to them. And I think that makes sense, right? You're going through a lot of changes, but you want to keep those tent poles there. So, yeah. Yeah, I also found it funny in one of the quotes he said the cast was up to 23 or 24 by the end of last season, which I just thought is right because if you asked me how many people were in the cast of SNL at that point, I'd be like, 23, 25, I don't know. And it seems like he didn't really know either. So it was probably time to cut it down a little bit. And and honestly, when you, you see a number like 23, 24, that's an enormous cast for SNL. No way you're giving enough playtime to all of those players. So to bring it down to a more reasonable number like 19 or 20, which is still huge, is probably good for the show. It makes sense. And, you know, we were talking about how some folks we really like, like Melissa Villasenor, never got quite as much screen time as we would have hoped. And, you know, it makes sense if there are 24 people that you can't really showcase them as much as one would hope. So hopefully, you know, we'll see exciting new work from some of the people who left. And also with this slightly pared down cast, we might like really have some of this new talent have a chance to shine. 
fingers crossed, we will share our thoughts and feelings as we uh, watch season 48 of Saturday Night Live. Oh, I had to think of a number there. I was like, it's a big number. Is it really that big? Season 48 of Saturday Night Live, premiering on October 1st. And uh, if you want to watch season 48 of Saturday Night Live, do you know where you can watch it? You can watch it on the National Broadcasting Corporation company, NBC. You cannot watch it next day on Hulu because NBC, as we have mentioned before, is taking back what is theirs and moving (laughs) all of their uh, next day new season programming to Peacock. term of endearment I have for this is the Peacockalypse. Uh, and that the Peacockalypse is a uh, apocalypse because everything involving Peacock seems to be a disaster. And more importantly, it's an apocalyptic event for fans who watch these shows on Hulu. And you might be thinking, yes, okay, Saturday Night Live, one new show. I, I can, if I really care, I can sign up for Peacock for SNL or for La Brea or SVU, the, the beautiful cornucopia of shows on NBC. Uh, but... You might not be remembering that NBC made some of your favorite comedies of all time. And that's where we have a listener letter this week from listener Rick. Rick has written in before. Hello, Rick. Thanks for writing in again. Rick wanted to let us know that he finally succumbed to Peacock. He's been holding out. He's been resisting this entire time. But the dominoes of the Peacockalypse finally fell and reached him because of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Ooh, understandable. That's a big comfort show for me. A really fun rewatch. Yeah, what a cast. Right? And that is now a Peacock exclusive. They've completely clawed it back. And so you might have been thinking, oh, new NBC series are only going to be on Peacock. Well, guess what? I don't watch any of those. In which case, good for you. But... We are also talking about your favorite NBC back catalog shows. Some old episodes are going to remain on Hulu for a while because Comcast is still a one-third owner of Hulu, and they have signed agreements for some of those shows to remain in the catalog for a set period of time. That is often a mystery, so who knows when they'll go away? But as soon as they can start clawing things off of Hulu, they are now going straight to Peacock. So it may be time. You may have to finally succumb to the Peacockalypse. Welcome aboard, Rick, and thanks for keeping us posted. I appreciate it. I'm glad I'm not the only one who, uh, you know, is suffering through Peacock alone. Listen, listeners, you will never suffer through Peacock alone as long as you listen to this podcast. We will all (laughs) suffer through Peacock together. And, you know, we'll all suffer through whatever happens to Hulu. I love Hulu. Hulu has a warm, fuzzy place in my heart. And, and also in Disney's, it seems, though they would like to fully integrate that organ into their being. For more on that, you can listen to our uh, coverage of Bob Chapik's really creepy comments last week. Uh, hard bundle. Is that triggering still? Hard bundle. But, you know. Uh, I'm rejecting it. <laughs> you're rejecting the hard bundle. Aren't we all? But you know what? Hulu is not rejecting new programming. And next week, we are going to review a new Hulu sitcom called Reboot, which is a sitcom about rebooting a sitcom and unfortunately not a reboot of the 90s computer-generated cartoon Reboot, which is what I thought when I heard they were rebooting Reboot. But they're not rebooting Reboot. They are making a new show called Reboot about a reboot of a sitcom that did not really exist because it's a TV show. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, Steve Leviton has brought us Reboot. Uh, People might know him from Modern Family. uh, And I'm excited to dive into that show. 
I am next too. Week? We uh, we are going to review that next week. Yes, we're going to watch the first three episodes. Uh, you can watch that on Hulu currently. And if you're wondering, well, where's the inspiration for this show? Uh, creator Stephen Leviton gave an interview that it it is all really about the reboot of Roseanne. He was still making Modern Family at the time, and he saw them rebooting Roseanne, and then we all saw the disaster that was Roseanne herself returning to the public eye, uh, and and then them continue with the reboot of Roseanne, just sans Roseanne, which was a real choice. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously, Stephen Leviton, being in that universe, thought it was super juicy and super interesting, and he apparently said to himself, if no one else steals that idea, when I'm done with Modern Family, that's my next thing. And somehow, no one else stole that idea, which actually is very surprising because it's an entire industry of people who just love to think and talk about the industry. Uh, But he got there first, and we will get there next week. Excited to dive in. I am excited to dive into that, but first I am excited to dive into some new news about everyone's favorite big boy streamer. Ta-dum! Netflix. Netflix. We have good news about Netflix this week, I think. It's, it's not bad news. We're, we're so used to talking about bad news about Netflix. But this is great. Netflix, you know, they had a pep rally last weekend. They call it Tadum, which is not to be confused with the Tadum blog where they shuttered everything after two weeks, essentially, and fired a bunch of people who quit their day jobs to write for Tadum. No, no, no. That's the bad Tadum. We're talking about the good Tadum, the one that is essentially like a a fan show not to dumb but to dumb yeah there you go that is it and uh, at to dumb they uh, revealed a whole bunch of trailers details it's a big hype machine event a lot like d23 disney's big hype machine event that we recently covered and I, I should take this moment to say we did find out what the 23 in d23 stands for and it stands for 1923 the year Disney began, and the year copyright will never, ever release to the public domain. <laughs> but enough about Disney. What's going on with Tadum? Whole lot of trailers released. Uh, basically a giant press conference. Uh, the trailer for Anola Holmes 2 came out. Um, something from Gal Gadot called, well, not from Gal Gadot, starring Gal Gadot called Heart of Stone. Uh, Jennifer Lopez leading as an assassin in The Mother. Okay, that's actually pretty exciting. Yeah, that one, real short teaser, don't really know anything about the plot, but she is looking super assassin in the teaser. Sign me up. Coming May 2023. And then more of Glass Onion, which is the sequel to Knives Out and has an incredible cast, so I'm psyched for that. I'm psyched for that, too. And that is, Netflix just bought their way into a franchise universe with that one. They want franchises so badly, and they saw Knives Out, and like many of us, we walked out of that movie and went, when can I have more of that, please? And they spent so much money in order to give us more of that, and honestly, is that not a public service? No. I mean, yes, 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 it it is is. a public service. (laughs) No, it is not not a public service. You know what else is a public service? Anytime we can watch something creepy in the Addams Family universe, like Wednesday, that's a seamless transition. Wednesday, you might know, is the upcoming uh, reboot. We are in reboot universe uh, of the story of the Addams Family, but specifically of Wednesday Addams, the daughter. And Wednesday is coming in November. Not in spooky season, 
decidedly in the holiday season. It's coming out November 23rd, which is a Wednesday, so I will give them points for that. But I do feel like, wow, what happened there? Yeah, I had that same thought. Why not release this in October? Which, you know, they just probably weren't ready. And I do think getting it right in before the Thanksgiving holiday will get it, you know, some views, hopefully. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people might download that to watch on the plane, or that's the thing that they just sit up and watch uh, while they process all of their Thanksgiving dinner the next day. If you're Mm -hmm. not into football, you're probably into the Addams Family. Sure. And, you know, family content around a holiday makes sense to me. Adam's family content around a holiday? You know. Even better. Did you watch the first trailer with the the water polo bros having their balls eaten by piranhas? Literally (laughs) a thing that happened in a trailer for this show? Family content. Yeah, I'm not going to watch that with my family, but thanks for the suggestion. Moving right (laughs) along, uh, we've talked about Netflix's franchise ambitions. Let's get into the franchise variety hour here, beginning with Bridgerton, which is now the Bridgerton Cinematic Universe because we have been uh, teased and given a release date, I believe, for Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, which is about Queen Charlotte of the Bridgerton stories. One season of Bridgerton was quite enough for me, but uh, this has its following. And, uh, you know, I know Netflix is eager for these franchises, so everything counts. That's right. And speaking of eager franchises, they also gave us an update on their budding Witcher cinematic universe. This is a franchise based on the already very popular video game franchise, The Witcher. The Witcher, the mainline show, is uh, in between seasons two and three right now. That stars Henry Cavill. And they give us a little update that season three is coming next summer. But no date, no teaser. Just, just don't worry. But don't worry about your Witcher fix because they have a spinoff and it's premiering in December. This one is a prequel, as is Queen Charlotte. Just prequel city, baby. Uh, This one is called The Witcher Blood Origin. Blood Origin, good prequel vibes in that. And Mm -hmm. while I do not care about The Witcher at all, I think I have to watch The Witcher Blood Origin because it stars Michelle Yeoh. She is wonderful and having a huge moment, so... Hard to deny that. Right? Keeping things spooky all through the holiday season. It's important. It very much is. Uh, And, of course, nothing says spooky like a quick teaser for Squid Game. They did not actually give us a teaser for the second season of Squid Game, but they did bring out the now Emmy Award-winning director of Squid Game to assure us there will be a season two of Squid Game, and it will, quote, be filled with all new stories. Enticingly vague. Right? Couldn't ask for more, really. Also, couldn't ask for less, because less would literally be no information whatsoever. (laughs) But great, that's all I need for now. Uh, But that's not the only Netflix news I wanted to talk about, actually, because Netflix has inadvertently stumbled into the video game universe in the last week or so, not because of The Witcher, but because of an anime series. And I have a couple links here. One of them is from uh, The Verge. It is a roundup of four anime series that are really well-reviewed on Netflix right now. Uh, Netflix is on a good run with anime lately, claims The Verge. Uh, And I'm not a huge anime fan. Diane... I'm going to venture to guess you are not either. I'm not, though I do have some friends who are, you know, very devoted anime fans. And I know that, you know, that's a really loyal viewing community. Yeah, 
If you have a good anime catalog or really interesting anime titles coming out, there is a devoted audience that will pay attention to that. It's a good niche to carve out for yourself in some ways. So I think it's, especially with so much turmoil in uh, streaming animation lately, it's really interesting to see that uh, anime is actually having kind of a renaissance. I, again, not a big anime fan, but I really enjoyed the Star Wars little anime anthology series Visions that ran on Disney+. Plus. You can stream that still. I think it's great. And then I was... uh, enticed by the panel at the top of the Netflix app on my TV to check out this other anime, Cyberpunk Edge Runners, which is an anime based in the universe of a video game called Cyberpunk 2077. I have not played this game uh, yet, at least, but you might have heard of it because it was one of the most spectacularly bad video game launches of the modern video game era. The game was super buggy, unfinished, people were playing it on like the most cutting-edge Xbox and PlayStation hardware, and the, the game was just choking, could not get through, people were incensed, PlayStation pulled it from their store, huge disaster. That was a couple years ago. The game has gotten updates now and is playable. So I love that Netflix sees a disaster and thinks that's for we us. could make, that's for us. <laughs> I recognize a Netflix brand. (laughs) But what's turned out is it's a hit show. I got to say, it was a really breezy 10 episodes to watch. I watched it in like two sittings while doing some other stuff. Great background. The voice cast, if you listen to the American dub, has Giancarlo Esposito as the main villain. Really good vibes. Uh, And it's got like a rockin' soundtrack, uh, opening theme music by Franz Ferdinand. Super fun. It has been such a hit that Cyberpunk 2077, the video game, is having the most popularity it has ever had. And we have an article in the show notes as well from renowned video game magazine, The Washington Post, that goes through the entire story of kind of the cyberpunk renaissance thanks to edge runners. And so while we've talked a lot about like doom and gloom in parts of the streaming universe, this is a, a really good example of... Uh, While it may not have mainstream appeal, because anime and cyberpunk and video games are all a little niche, it's big enough. There's like this pop culture moment happening about a video game all because of one TV show on Netflix. It also makes sense to me that this could be part of a bigger Netflix strategy to avoid churn by having, you know, Uh, specific things that like keep someone loyal to your streaming service. If you can convince anime viewers that they need to keep their Netflix subscriptions, you know, that, that seems like really powerful branding. Well, also, it checks multiple boxes in this instance, because I agree 100% about anime being a great retainer uh, against a, a great defense against churn. But it's also about video game fans and video game content. And we already mm. just talked about The Witcher, huge video game franchise, very popular series on Netflix. And as we've mentioned in past episodes, Sonic the Hedgehog is coming to Netflix. They are, I think, seeing there's a lot of value in cross-pollinating with video game IP, which is something that hasn't been super successful in the past, and it's not super successful every time they do it. Uh, We didn't talk about this show, but Resident Evil, huge video game franchise, uh, came to Netflix over the summer and was so bad, I don't know if I've ever seen a Netflix series get canceled so fast, let alone one where I kind of assumed that they had bought two seasons because it's such big IP, but no. It's not to say it's a perfect strategy, but I think it's a really interesting strategy. And then seeing them begin to stack these to say, what if we can check two boxes with this show? Video game fans and anime fans. What if we can also check the Giancarlo Esposito box? Literally. 
I mean, I'm a Giancarlo Esposito fan, so maybe I'll have to check this out. God, he plays a guy with like four eyeballs, but not exactly in the order you would think. It's really good. <laughs> Sounds great. You know, speaking of people with unusual heads and uh, accoutrement on their head, let's talk really quickly about Darth Vader. Because we are going to review a Star Wars series in this episode, I wanted to end with a little Star Wars headline. And this one, I think, will shock some people. Because I tried this out at a dinner party this weekend, and Mm -hmm. it shocked some people. Uh, You might know that James Earl Jones is the longtime voice of Darth Vader under the helmet. And you might also know that James Earl Jones is still alive and kicking at 91. You might have assumed he was dead, but I am here to tell you, James Earl Jones, very much alive and kicking. But you, if you watched Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney Plus earlier this year and saw a ton of Darth Vader and heard a ton of the voice of James Earl Jones, you may be shocked to learn you got deep faked. I was under the impression that he had recorded this, these lines, and then they had AI enhanced it, um, that he had done at least some recording in a booth somewhere, even if obviously, you know, he was never walking around as the guy in the suit. Turns out they had already talked to him and already gotten his blessing to hand over his voice print, essentially using all of this old footage and old audio of him as Darth Vader to a Ukrainian company that does this vocal deep faking, essentially. They did it as well in The Mandalorian for young Luke Skywalker. And if you, you do watch those episodes, you realize, like, yeah, he does. He sounds like Mark Hamill, but he sounds like Mark Hamill 40 years ago, maybe talking through a really good voicemail recording. Like, there is something a little off about it because it is assembled from old audio clips that are enhanced and rearranged by the AI. And so I do think, like, I remember feeling on those Mark Hamill scenes a little bit of the uncanny valley, but but it's hard to separate the vocal side of that from the fact that you were watching this completely deep-faked young Mark Hamill, which was super uncanny. The Vader example is way more interesting because you don't, it was a physical Hayden Christensen in the body, mm. in the suit. There was a human actor there. And so that you're not having that deep fake assumption. You hear the voice and you know it's recorded, you know it's ADR, but that was always true with Darth Vader. So I agree. I thought, oh, this is real James Earl Jones or again, like digitally enhanced for the TV. I didn't know he literally had zero seconds in a recording booth. I wonder how far this trend will go. Um, I, we've seen it in a few other big movies. Um, they did it in the new Top Gun movie with Val Kilmer. Um, you know, I will this be a thing of the future where instead of just hiring actors to do it, we deep fake everything? And then I guess what is lost in vocal performance if you just have a computer guessing instead of, you know, James Earl Jones is an incredible actor. Might he have made different choices in the readings if he were actually doing it? And and just we'll also, know. as these franchises age and become potentially kind of timeless stories that get told and retold over and over again, are, are is there never going to be another actor who voices Darth Vader? Like, is this it? Is James Earl Jones the only voice of Darth Vader anyone will ever hear forever? And you can debate the merits of that either way, but I think uh, if you're an actor, one way to look at that is, no, you're taking away future roles for real actors who are living and breathing and giving them to deepfakes of dead people. 
Yeah, or uh, deepfakes of living people. <laughs> okay, uh, like I said, James Earl Jones, alive and kicking, gave his blessing to this. I gotta be 100% clear on that one. I think that there's gonna be something lost. Actors have gifts. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be the old man afraid of change, but I'm the old man afraid of change here. As am I. Yeah, I'm I'm scared of of these robot overlords. Oh, I'm sure our robot overlords will be no worse than our imperial overlords in the world of Disney Plus's Andor. Why don't we review it? Let's. Yes, we are reviewing a new Star Wars entry in the Star Wars cinematic universe that is going to just consume all of the universe at some point. There will be no more stars, no more wars, just a Star Wars story. And this one's called Andor, a Star Wars story. I don't know if it actually has the subtitle, a Star Wars story, but the uh, original movie it's based on, Rogue One, colon, a Star Wars story does. And so forever in my mind, we are watching Andor, colon, a Star Wars story. I loved Rogue One, so I was pretty optimistic about this one. It seemed like potentially a really fresh addition to the Star Wars universe, which is slowly consuming us all, as you mentioned. Uh, how would you say overall you feel about Andor so far, Chris? I'm feeling pretty good. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the headline at Vulture is is Andor the cure for Star Wars on Wii? And, I, you know, having only seen the three-episode premiere, so spoiler alert right now for episodes one, two, and three, which dropped all at once, a three-episode block, uh, and now the show's going to weekly, so, you know, you can breathe, watch the first three, and then we'll take it at a normal human pace. Uh, but I am really optimistic at the end of the third episode, and I do want to start by saying they had to drop that as a three-episode premiere. I would not feel as good after just the first episode, or even just the first two. The three together are really like a prologue to the story we're going to see, which we've also been given some assurance is already really planned out. It's going to be two seasons, 24 episodes total. They've already mapped out the entire story because it is a prequel to Rogue One, which came out in 2016. So if you need a spoiler alert for a movie that came out in 2016, here's your spoiler alert for Rogue One. They all die at the end. So Cassian Andor, we already know his fate. He does not live mm -hmm. on into the Star Wars universe. So they are able to really tightly plot this out. And they want to give us that assurance at the top, which I think is really interesting given how the Star Wars shows started really strong with The Mandalorian, and now the reception's been a lot more mixed with Boba Fett and Obi-Wan. I feel like they wanted to really send some messaging out ahead of Andor to say, don't worry, we have a really solid plan for this show. Yeah, and I think that it seems like we're in really strong hands so far. Like, it seems like there's a guiding vision for three, these three episodes. The only thing I didn't like about the drop strategy of having three episodes at once is they're all just over a half an hour long, um, a little longer with all the credits and everything, but um, in terms of the actual content, about just over a half hour. So it felt like they were releasing a short movie a little bit with yeah. the 90-minute drop. But the way that it was plotted within did feel like serialized content. Uh, I'm always complaining that I want my TV shows to feel like TV shows. And this one does so far. It and does. a good one at that. Oh, yeah. Duration wise, it very much did feel like a little movie, but it didn't tell a complete story the way a movie mm -hmm. would. It told us truly the first act of what is going to be many acts of this tale. 
Uh, and what is this tale? Andor, if you don't remember Rogue One, didn't see Rogue One, he's going to be a, a member of the Rebel Alliance, which is not called that yet. There is not a, an official rebellion against the Empire yet. This show is set in between the prequel trilogy and the original Star Wars movies. And Diane, as you noted, this is a few years after the events of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So we are... Yeah. Uh, Luke would be a teenager. Don't worry. Luke is not a character on the show. And if he does show up, I will take back all of the nice things I said about the show. But <laughs> uh, that is where we are. So the Empire is pretty much in its heyday. This might be, you know, peak Empire. Right. So this focuses, though, less on the Skywalker family, uh, who really, you know, get the bulk of the attention in the movies and more on sort of the ordinary working people who are, you know, going to form this rebel alliance. And I loved this change. Um, it, it really felt in this pilot a lot like Blade Runner to me or um, some of those uh, 80s, 90s Paul Verhoeven movies. Um, like it felt like you let one of those great directors play in the Star Wars universe. And Tony Gilroy, who has created this series and also wrote Rogue One, clearly has a really strong vision for the show. Um, I'm a big fan of his screenplay for Michael Clayton. Um, I think that's just an incredible film. So seeing someone who's just not necessarily totally embedded in the nerd culture part of Star Wars, uh, but just really a solid filmmaker take on this material is very exciting for me. Yeah, I think calling out Michael Clayton is a really good reference point for the kind of tone of Tony Gilroy's writing. He also wrote a lot of the original Bourne trilogy, the Bourne Identity, Bourne Supremacy, some of those Bourne movies, and his brother wrote another one. His brother is one of the screenwriters on uh, Andor as well. Uh, so uh, tight, tight group, it seems. And uh, Tony Gilroy... I, he wrote the first three episodes that we saw, and he's going to return for the last two episodes of the season, 11 and 12. So he clearly is not just the showrunner in name, but the showrunner in practice. That it really is kind of his vision of the story they're going to tell. Uh, and I do think it's really smart of Disney to look at the Star Wars universe and go, we are way over-indexed on the Skywalker saga. We went mm -hmm. way too hard into it in the new trilogy, and then we doubled down on it in the TV uh, shows on Disney+. And Rogue One was successful in so many ways because it was a different Star Wars movie. It had new characters. You understood the stakes because it took place in the existing Star Wars timeline. And so it kind of gave it a shortcut to be an action movie because, great, I don't have to tell you what the stakes of this universe are. You come knowing the stakes, and you know these guys are scrappy freedom fighters, and you're already on their side. And that really helped grease the wheels, I think, for that movie to find a, an audience that maybe isn't super satisfied with all of the rest of the direction Star Wars has gone. And so I think Disney cluing into that and going, what if we made a Star Wars show for those people? And odds are a lot of the diehard fans will come along for the ride. Yeah. I also think with Rogue One, one thing I was missing, even though I like that movie a lot, it's probably my favorite Star Wars movie, um, was you didn't get as much character development because you really are in the action of everything happening. So having some time to get to know Cassian Andor better, it, you know, pays off for me a lot already. 
Yeah, because that was such a tight movie and such an action thriller, and it was an ensemble piece, so it has all these great actors in it, but none of them have really big story arcs and characterization that you're there for. They're all working together as a unit. Kind of like kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy 1 in some ways, where it's like there's one character that we have the time and space to give you a backstory for, and it's the star. And and to be clear, Cash and Andor, not the star of Rogue One. He is a major character in Rogue One, but he's not the main character. So we're, we're picking somebody who we don't know that much about, and now getting to flesh out his entire backstory and what brought him to Rogue One, and then made him essentially a... a essentially a martyr for the rebel cause yeah there is a bit of a tease in the in the movie where he says that he's been in this fight since he was six years old i think or some little kid and so in this extended pilot (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we have some flashbacks of him as a kid um, when he was going by the name Casa, uh, and we see him on his home planet, which he no longer lives on. And and some uh, sort of horrible disaster has happened there, it seems, and um, no one lives there anymore. So we're sort of also finding out the mystery of what happened to his planet. Yeah, and I thought they unfolded that backstory really well in the first three episodes in a way that I we might flash back to his younger life still as we continue, but they completed that story. That backstory begins in the pilot where we don't, all we understand is this kid is young him, and we mm-hmm. don't know really anything else. On that planet, in his home world, they don't speak English. They speak a native tongue that does not get translated on screen for us. So we really don't get much context to what that that life is like but it kind of looks like it's a, a a foresty planet where the children seem to have the run of the tribe you know the oldest yeah. member of the tribe looks like she's maybe 17 and they all go to investigate what we realize is the crash of a, a an imperial ship of some kind some kind of empire ship has crashed we we realize through uh, the first two episodes that the planet's being mined by the Empire, all of this just through visuals, through action, really slowly but clearly told. And that leads to uh, an Imperial trooper of some kind, not like a stormtrooper, like a human-looking trooper, uh, killing that that old, eldest teen of the tribe. And they the rest of the teens take her body away. Cassa? now still Kassa, is the youngest member on that that group. He left his, like, baby sister behind. He wanted to be with the big kids investigating the mystery ship. He goes into the ship alone and takes his rage out, basically. He's smashing things. He just watched his leader die. And so he's just being a, a kid and throwing a fit. And that's when perhaps my favorite surprise casting choice of this series appears in his life, Fiona Shaw, playing She's his adoptive so mother. And then, honestly, that story in the third episode where we we finally see how she became his adoptive mother, they kidnap him. And it, it, it's uh, I, kind of, you have this moment of, but I love her. And he seems to, he, she is still alive in the present day in these first three episodes. So that, that's part of seeing 
uh, both the beginning of their story together and what seems like the end of their story together, because I have a hard time imagining he's going to be able to go back to her now that he's a fugitive, essentially. Uh, So sadly, we may not see much more Fiona Shaw, but she's so good as both his now older mother, uh, you know, living kind of the retiree life on this little desert planet, because it's Star Wars, everything has a desert planet. Uh, But the, the young version of her is like this swashbuckling... Um, uh, um, scavenger uh, Mm -hmm. and they're down in this ship you know taking the parts and fleeing and they see him there and they realize the Empire is going to murder him and the implication we get from that is the Empire just wiped out his home planet so yeah they do definitely uh, show her kidnapping him but kidnapping him to save his life correct they do emphasize that part (laughs) Um, you mentioned that we see young Casa, who's, uh, you know, got a little bit of that mischief- mischievousness already. Like, he's getting himself into trouble with the older kids when maybe he shouldn't be. But we also see that through her, where, like, it's dangerous to keep proceeding on the ship. Um, her partner, Clem, who's with her, is like, maybe we should hold back. And she's forging straight ahead. <laughs> she's going to drug this kid <laughs> or, like, knock him out if it means that they have to save him and kidnap him. So uh, you see both his character development in the sense that he always had that rebelliousness but also you can see how being raised by marva would have nourished that side of his personality absolutely and then as things really come to a climax in the third episode and marva is being held prisoner in her home essentially by some uh, imperial adjacent troops uh she's corpos corpos. she's still a total stick in the mud to them she is just to her dying breath and she did not die in that episode but to her dying breath she will be stubborn as all hell and take the risk of letting them know which one of the vibes you get very quickly in this show is you know the empire is totalitarian at this point and if you live Mm -hmm. under their heel you do not speak ill of the empire it is very much a situation we see in the pilot the very beginning of the pilot episode one uh where we're with the corpos the corpos, essentially corporate security for large corporations that are, you know, mining the universe, stealing resources from colonized planets, doing the bidding of the empire in a real throwback Dutch East India trade company kind of way. Uh, and so there's a city, a whole city run by this corporation. And the opening scene that is the very Blade Runnery part of the premiere is Casa looking for someone who we later realize he's looking for his sister from his home world, who he never saw again, because like we said, he was kidnapped, but in a good way. Uh, He's on this planet trying to get information, and he's not supposed to be there, we gather, because he's not a corpo. And so some corpo security guards see him, and they decide to give him trouble outside the brothel where they were hanging out. And he accidentally, accidentally kills one of them. And then very intentionally has to kill the other one, no witnesses, which also is a great, like, early indication of the tone of this show. Really Mm -hmm. smart opening uh, gambit, I think. That upsets the the corpo security 
apparatus. And the corpo security apparatus uh, is kind of divided into two sides, uh, represented by two characters we meet. There is the head of security, and he wants no attention from the Empire, and wants the... He knows exactly what happened, too. It's a great scene. It's a scene between him and his number two. His number two is played by Kyle Soler, a character called Sreel, who winds up with kind of a vendetta against Cassian, and I think we're going to see that continue through the season. It seems like they're setting him up as kind of the big bad. But... In this initial introduction to him, he's the like the company man who believes that we need to defend the corpo security people who were murdered. We need to show that we can investigate that and bring the murderer to justice. We owe them that because they were such loyal, patriotic corpo people. Uh, and his boss, the head of security, he goes, well, think about what really happened here. Some dark stranger from another world like gave them trouble at a bar they took it too far he killed them and then he fled we're probably not going to find him and if we call it a murder our murder rate goes up and then the empire will ask why our murder rate is so high and then we'll have all of this meddling from the empire and we don't want that it's literally like a compstat meeting in the nypd like no you need to juice the numbers so that it looks like they died in an accident for a scene about the bureaucracy of uh, an empire, I thought that this was really great. You know, I, yeah, I, and it's very early it in very the show compelling. too. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of boring to describe in a way. So thank you for sitting through that with me. But it was really compelling to watch and gave you such a great window into what life is like in the empire at this point. And it is something where you can see parallels to real life. Part part of why Star Wars is ever good is because it touches on epic classic stories and real world tensions and fears all the time but that's been lost i think in some of the newer star wars content especially uh, the newer movies and so it was really fun to watch this and go yeah that's like life that's like yes that is like a real thing i know and i believe that people will act like that because they do Yeah, but I can't, I don't think any of the original Star Wars would have had a scene that let there be this much nuance to the the Empire. And I appreciated that this is like not your grandma's Star Wars. And true, I I would say Lando Calrissian, Cloud City, that has shades of this in a very early light. But I agree with you that this is this is far deeper in that territory than Star Wars has gone since the prequel trilogy when we were talking about space trade unions right which, and even which that was, was not just shinier <laughs> yeah. in a way this the like gritty edge that this has does not feel like the epic nature of star wars to me it feels like it's um going into less black and white ethics and i like that i i like that they are not are straying away from this like very classic hero's journey of good versus evil. Yeah, that is obviously the direction we're going here. Shades of gray throughout as we follow Mm -hmm. Cassian Andor on his journey. And basically where we are at the end of the three-episode premiere is he has been discovered uh, by the Corpos. and And the Corpos have come to his planet to try to arrest him. And it has gone so badly that now he is certainly on the Empire's radar as well. Yeah, though also it seems like uh, Cyril, the Imperial soldier who went behind his commander's back to chase down this guy with this, you know, pretty incompetent team that he assembles, uh, is also possibly going to be in big trouble. 
Yeah, I, I really wonder what they're going to do with him next. Because like I said, you get the vibe that Surreal is going to be on a, a vendetta to get Cassian mm-hmm. Andor. But also, I'm sure he's in trouble. Because it was made explicitly clear that he should not do any of the things that he did. And they all went very, very badly. So many dead corpos. Yeah. Uh, we also had the death of uh, another interesting character that they had set up, um, Tim. Who Tim with two M's. I just want to be clear. It's it's space, so it's Tim. Tim. Um, you know, one of those uh, Ben Star Wars names where you're yeah. like, oh, I guess, I guess, I guess there are Jakes here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a character who I, I was intrigued by. I liked his like nice little arc. Um, we see him in the first episode. He is uh, the boyfriend of Bix, who is, uh, or or at least the seeming boyfriend of yeah, Bix. Well, we, yeah, they make it pretty clear. They're 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 a thing. She, mm-hmm. He also works at, like, the junk shop, the junkyard, the salvage yard that Bix works at. And Bix is clearly an old, old friend of Cassian's and, and perhaps an old flame of Cassian's. Yeah, it seems like yeah. both. And yeah. so there's a bit of Tim jealousy. Tim sees Cassa and uh, Bix talking to each other at a distance and they're whispering about things. And he thinks, they never make this super explicit, but it's pretty clear, he thinks they're having an affair. And in, in reality... Uh, Casa is trying to offload some stolen Imperial goods because Casa is a troublemaker and what he does all day is run around stealing stuff and trying to track down his sister. Uh, and Bix is his conduit to sell that stuff. And Tim doesn't know about it. Tim apparently doesn't even know that Bix is like a black market, gray market trader in addition to her legit business. So of course they're hiding it from him. But that makes him suspicious. And then word comes out on the Corpo Interpol wire that they're looking for this kind of tall, dark, and handsome man from some planet that nobody's heard of anymore. And Tim goes, hey... My girlfriend Bix once mentioned that Casa is from that planet no one's ever heard of. And he sure is tall, dark, and handsome. I'm going to call the hotline. And then he goes into like a space phone booth, which I really appreciated that there were space phone booths. And he calls the hotline and rats out Casa. And so we see Bix realize that he did that. And then we see him get murdered by the Corpos when he is trying to stop them from harassing Bix. And then Bix watches him die. And and what I loved about that arc was it felt very satisfying and complete in three episodes, which was a nice mm. way to say we're not going to see a lot of the characters from this prologue again or not very much. And so we're going to give you some completion on some of their stories. And I, I really liked how tragic it was for Bix because they could have gone the easy route of he betrayed her by ratting out Casa and that's it. You know, she, she drops him. And instead, he, he tries to save her, winds up being killed by the very people he called to the planet, and she is clearly devastated by it. Yeah. And while it did put a bit of resolution on his arc, I agree, it also ramped up the tension on, you know, it's not just that Cassian's in trouble it's that he's put a ton of other people in danger and you know not entirely at his own fault but partially at his own fault and that you see sort of the the problem escalating to a a bigger and bigger issue uh, both for him but also also for the Empire and for all his allies so you also do at the end of all of this get that kind of classic Star Wars trope of but our protagonist is special 
He doesn't have force mm-hmm. powers, thank God. But we find out that this black market trader that Bix is summoned to buy this imperial item off of Casa, Casa needs to offload it real fast because he now knows he's a fugitive from the Corpos and he's trying to get off the planet as quickly as he can, right? So uh, this guy comes. This guy, a Skarsgård, comes. Uh, and he is clearly being set up to be a, a big deal, rebel alliance kind of person because we spend a lot of time with him on his you know, space bus trip to the the trading town and when he arrives the corpos are already shooting everything up and it's a complete disaster and he knows his time is limited to find casa and when he finds casa they get ambushed because of course they get ambushed and uh they don't have the artifact anymore the imperial cube that casa's trying to sell him gets like stuck uh in the crossfire and casa's like i gotta get the cube we gotta get the cube to sell you the cube and of course, we know the cube is not the story we're here for. And so Luthen, played by Stellan Skarsgård, you know, straight up tells Casa, I'm not here for that. I'm here for you. Their scene really took the show to a new level for me in terms of excitement. Uh, once you finally had Luthen and Cashin talking, and he's trying to uh, convince him basically to run away with him and be part of a a bigger uh, rebellion, it seems like, is what they're setting up. Um, And the way that he challenges him to think bigger and, like, starts with some of that, like, you're capable of much more, it had a real excitement about what could come for these characters. And I, I just loved that scene, and I was so ready for what's going on now like i liked the show before that but now i'm like oh okay i'm in that's also why i think the first three really work as a unit because all Mm -hmm. of the first two episodes are a build up to this really satisfying climax in the third one that feels like a powder keg kicking off this really epic journey uh that we're going to go on so i i think all three of them work very well but it's the fact that they kind of end on this really great high note that you feel like they've earned through the journey there that that really seals the deal i i mean back to our initial question uh about is this the cure for star wars on we to me absolutely so far yeah it, it feels not like the other movies at all tonally no and there's a lot of little detail there that's contributing to that uh one thing that has become a little bit of a meme on the internet that i loved in the first three episodes is this guy who plays the bell tower in Cassian's town mm-hmm. on the desert planet but of course it's it's star wars so he doesn't just ring a bell and no it's not a digital bell he doesn't push a button it's like a big anvil and he climbs the tower with these giant hammers like thor and he hits them rhythmically and those scenes when he's like calling everyone uh, it's like the beginning of day end of day bells that he rings those scenes so beautiful so epic of a vibe not much is happening in those scenes but they give you this sense of like scope and grandeur that these people are just ordinary citizens of this massive universe where people live in you know death stars and huts like there's just such a huge scope a huge range of of experience and uh the show is promising to show us a lot of those corners of the star wars universe we have not seen or don't see frequently and and to do it in a way that is a little uh, refreshing, like just stylistically, tonally different. 
Yeah, uh, the music is composed by Nicholas Bertel. I didn't know that until I started watching. I think actually you, you texted yeah, me I, being like, did you know? Oh I, my gosh. I, I didn't know uh, when I watched the first episode, but I did mentally note, you know, this music is a little different. It's not as spaghetti Western as Star Wars has been leaning on the TV series in particular, even though a lot of mm-hmm. this is still on a desert planet. It doesn't have the, we're on a desert planet. Here's some like, you know, space Southwestern music uh, that has really been a hallmark of the Mandalorian and Boba Fett and all of those shows. So the Nick Patel soundtrack is really in the universe, but in a different tone that we don't typically hear in Star Wars. Yeah, it, it's really working so far for me. Um, people probably know him best for the succession music absolutely iconic um and and in both shows he does a uh, he has a real great style of ramping up the underscoring towards the end of an episode to really punctuate the end of an episode and he does that in uh andor very very well and in a way where i'm like that's not how they do it on the other disney plus shows that's a that's a nick bretel move yeah i I think that's i know i keep Going back to the fact that the tone of this show is so different, but I, how are all these big corporations, your Marvels, your Disney's, Star Wars, going to keep us coming back with these franchises in a way that doesn't feel, you know, sleepy? And I think this is it. You get artists with a really strong vision and then you let them do their thing and don't <laughs> just give them free reign to make the show they want to make. Yeah, they're really communicating that confidence that they've handed the vision to Tony Gilroy and that he and his team have crafted a whole story and brought together people who are all on the same page and all excited to tell it with him. They really want us to know that. And to that end, I want to outline some of the creative choices we already know, because I think it's really interesting as we get into the show to watch for how these creative choices influence the story and the feeling of, of watching it. Uh, so most of the episodes are grouped together with the same screenwriter and director for a chunk of episodes. And in the first season, the 12 episodes are going to cover exactly one year of Cassian's life. So we're three episodes in, and those first three episodes, like we said before, were written by uh, Tony Gilroy himself and directed by Toby Haynes. This was hard for me because it's a Tony and a Toby. Very complicated. Uh, You might know Toby Haynes from a few really good TV directing appearances that I have hot takes about. I'm sure you're very excited for my impromptu hot takes. He directed what I think is the last good episode of the Sherlock series on the BBC, the one at the end of season two called The Reichenbach Fall. That's like the epic Moriarty episode. And after that, the show was never good again. Or at least, jump the shark. Uh, He directed that great episode of television. He also directed one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes, the USS Callister. And I also love the USS Callister. That episode is all J.J. Abrams, lens flare, space, shiny, shiny. And this is a completely different tone of sci-fi. Uh, and it has some of that shiny, shiny when we go to the Corpo City, when we go to the, the Empire. But that is the exception, not the rule. Yeah, it's definitely a, a grittier visual effect. And and it works, I think. It oh, yeah. seems like we had a bit of that in Obi-Wan Kenobi where we saw his like boring day job, you know. But it just felt a little boring <laughs> when that was happening. Whereas this, when we see them going about their jobs because there's so much intrigue with um, everything else that's happening and because the, the plot has such propulsion, it never felt dull in that same way 
Correct. I think there's a real big difference between the uh, day job that Obi-Wan has to deal with in the premiere of Obi-Wan Kenobi, because he goes to it, and we just watch him be bored at it, versus mm-hmm. the day job that Cassian is ducking out on in the premiere of Andor. He's constantly running into his buddies who are like, I didn't see you at work today. Hey, you still owe me 50 bucks. Hey, I can only cover for you at work so many times, dude. And we get to see a bit of their work. We get to see what that ordinary job is that people punch in and out of on the space planet you know but Mm -hmm. we don't watch someone be bored there which really helps really does help the momentum of the show it certainly does um and hopefully the momentum is kicked off now because they're handing off the writing and directing to new teams for the rest of the season pretty much so uh, the next chunk of episodes are written by dan gilroy who is tony gilroy's brother and directed by Susanna white Episode 7, kind of a one-off. Stephen Schiff is writing and Benjamin Carson is directing. But Benjamin Carson comes back to direct the final two episodes of the season, which are written by Tony Gilroy. So there's a lot of consistency there. And then uh, I am very excited. Uh, Episodes 8, 9, and 10, written by Bo Willimon who, again, big fan. big fan, and also somebody whose background as a screenwriter and a playwright is a lot of political intrigue and political drama. Uh, you may have heard of House of Cards. That's a Bo <laughs> Willimon. Uh, and what we know of Andor is that there's a whole set of characters who are dealing with the political intrigue side back in the Capitol. Uh, people who are trying to reform the Empire from within in the Senate. People who are trying to undermine the Senate to kick off the rebellion. We haven't met those people yet. So I have a feeling we're seeing some choices around, ooh, we're going to get real political intrigue heavy later in the season. Let's bring in Bo. It makes a ton of sense to me. I think that's a great choice. And he also is really good at ratcheting up tension, too. So, you know, we can have a conversation about House of Cards another time. Or not. Or just never. Or we won't. Uh, But I'm excited that he is going to be working in this world. Um, I also think it's great that we have, you know, the show is going to have two seasons and they each have 12 episodes time to really develop a story. You know, Um, it's been hard with these short episode drops to really let the, let anything happen pacing wise. And I I think that 24 episodes, you could actually have a, a real juicy story. Yeah, and in the second season, the uh, episodes are going to have a series of time jumps built in. So we don't know when exactly those are yet, but we know that the second season is going to cover four years and that there are time jumps built into the season to jump us forward a year at a time or something like that. And that, again, they're going to group together the screenwriters and directors to kind of, I think, you know, do each time jump as a block. So there's cohesion in the storytelling, in the style. I think that's really smart and brings together a really tight group of collaborators, potentially, who can make sure that the tone is, you know, maintains this unique flavor of Star Wars that we've been talking about all episode. Because they, Toby and Tony did a really good job of saying, here's something of the familiar Star Wars palette, but we have really brought some umami to this that you've never tasted before. Yeah, when you think of it as a prequel to a prequel, it sounds like it's not going to be much. Do not, do really. not think of it like that. Oh no! <laughs> but um, really, with these creators behind it, I I feel 
very enthusiastic. I do too. Kind of sad I have to wait a few days to find out what happens next. I know. Now it goes weekly. Now you got to buckle up and tune in. Episodes will be dropping on Disney Plus every week through November 23rd, just in time to flip over to Wednesday on Netflix. Uh, so we will be watching the whole season. If you're watching the season, write to us. Tell us what you're thinking. Ask us your questions. Podcast at streamageddon.com. We will give our thoughts in a rewind review when the season finishes up, as well as our hopes and dreams for season two. Are you excited for that, Diane? Oh, very excited. I think, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about some big franchise shows, and this one, to me, feels the most confident. Yeah, even more so than She-Hulk, which we will be revisiting. We, we did an episode about that recently, if you haven't heard. That's another one that comes in with a, a new angle on the existing genre or cinematic universe that we're in and does come at it with a lot of confidence. But I will say, at least where we are right now, Andor has more confidence, and you can feel it. Agree. Mm. Well, until next time, when we're back to talk about Reboot, the show that is not a reboot, but about a reboot... That's all that's going on in the streaming universe here, but turn on your TV. I bet there's something going on in the streaming universe right there. I'm scared of of these robot overlords.